Okay, and we are live. Rock and roll. We are live. This week has been a textbook lesson to me in the difference between scientific procedure and dogma and how the two can be obfuscated. How so? So a lot of it has to do with that CDC. So the CDC officially said, um, you tyrant. Oh, leave it alone. Goose. Get out from there, naughty. Um, <laughs> the CDC said officially two weeks ago that if you are vaccinated, you do not need to wear a mask in public and that you can begin to fully integrate back into society again. And it was received with a lot of pushback socially. Yeah, which is weird. And so my place of employment, it's a large open open public open to the public business. They made an official announcement that if you're vaccinated as a patron, you can come in without a mask on. And if you're vaccinated as a an employee and they have proof of whether or not we've been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask either. Yeah. Okay. The same with Target too. Oh, really? Yeah, as long as there's no local, like, mask mandate legally in place, then they're saying they're done. So. Which, you know, you think a year and a half-ish. <laughs> it'd be ready. Is a, a good enough amount of time. So, the thing for me with dogma. So, I looked up the definition of dogma this week, and I was also thinking about what the scientific method implies, and also public health in general, because I think it can so often be misinterpreted as a social critique instead of a an extrapolation of data from science. Mm-hmm. Because at my place of employment, I haven't been wearing a mask. I'm vaccinated. The CDC advised that if I don't, if I'm vaccinated and there's no local jurisdiction that suggests otherwise, I can be out in public without a mask on. But the patrons at the, the establishment I work at are, they have taken it so poorly. There's like so many people that are still wildly afraid about this whole thing. Now I'm not invalidating them, but I'm just, yeah. it, it's blown my mind because the CDC are the same people that gave the mask mandate. Yeah, for real. And you think that we quote, have like a science friendly administration, you know, the people who are, uh, minded that way, you think they would <clears throat> be okay with those mandates, um, those new ones now where, hey, I mean, you know, I have friends who work in healthcare, they're vaccinated, and so they go out in public without masks now because that's, it's legal where they're at and they still get looks and like they're in the healthcare field. And it's like, It's like the science has crossed over into culture, and now it's like we culturally wear masks. That's exactly what I'm getting and, at. And uh, like, the... it's like devolved into like tribalism. And I had somebody tell me, <laughs> I had an anonymous person tell me three or four days ago that I work with that they want to take the mask off at work because they're vaccinated and they've heard the CDC's jurisdictions, but they don't want people to think that they're a Republican. 
So it comes, it boils down exactly to like culture and dogma and, and tribalism. I don't want to say that they represent the masses, but I definitely get that feeling from a lot of people. They're like, well, I don't want to be seen as an anti-masker. And I'm like, we should all be anti-maskers now if we're vaccinated. Yeah. We should all be anti-maskers. Not like or uh, pro, and pro-science. That's what I'm saying. And yeah. What, I'm, I'm not saying to give credence to the anti-maskers because... Quite frankly, I think that they really invalidated and and confused the science that happened during this whole experience. And that's look, that is what it is. And we're past that now. Uh, I just think that now we're finally coming to a close and it's still turning into this cultural dispute. And quite frankly, I don't want people to think that I'm I'm trying to phrase this in a way that's not aggressive, but. I don't want people to think I'm a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I don't want people to think, I don't want to s- people to see me and automatically assume my political persona. Honestly, um, what I've been working on is just not caring about what people think. Cause I work in like in it and I go on client site and most of the time I don't really wear a mask anymore unless they, require it a lot of my clients uh tell me they're like oh you don't have to wear a mask anymore so they essentially give me permission uh and there's some people coming back into work who still like wear masks and kind of like look at me a little terrified and i'm like i try to be like hey don't don't worry i'm vaccinated like we're good to go i'm assuming you're vaccinated if you're this worried about it still and mo- most of the time they are, so I don't know. I'm not really caring anymore. <laughs> it just the the reason that I even brought it up is because like the dogma takes something that was once true or something that has truth in part of it and then caters it to a narrative that allows you to establish some sort of power or control. That is the only part of this whole entire pandemic from the American Western perspective that I feel has caused a social pariah Mm -hmm. and the consequences of this are not going to be pretty. And I think it's, I hate to say this, but I think it's going to take a pop icon like a Beyonce or somebody that's like more like current and involved, uh, maybe politically posting on social media without their mask on in public and saying I'm vaccinated and it's safe, and then people will start to go, oh, okay, yeah, the science is legit. Mm-hmm. Um, I just public health to me this is the pandemic has been indicative that our American public health is a failure, especially when it comes to disseminating information. There's just so much missing that it's oh yeah, lots of conflicting information, and and so it's hard to believe it. And people it, are too emotionally involved. It makes it really easy to delegitimize it when it's when you're getting false flags all the time. Oh yeah. Well, I just I don't know if I really care anymore. I I don't care about that's the spirit, the zeitgeist. I don't care whether other people think I should wear a mask or not anymore. I got vaccinated. I did my part. Um, I'm worried about myself and my circle of family and friends, and that's pretty much it. That's well put. That's well put. Um, So this week we are going to talk about our good friend and philosopher, Neville Goddard, uh, 
uh, and his methods. Um, do you want me to just dive right into the... So I sort of have a quick uh, biography here with Neville Goddard. Um, so the main source uh, that I have for the biography uh, is an article written by Mitch Horowitz on harvbishop.com called Neville Goddard, A Cosmic Philosopher, uh, which I'll put a, a link to in the show notes. Um, Neville Goddard was probably the 20th century's most intellectually sub- substantiative and charismatic purveyor of the philosophy generally called New Thought. He wrote more than 10 books under the solitary pen name Neville and was a a popular speaker on metaphysical themes from the late 1930s until his death in 1972. Neville's philosophy, inspired from his study of metaphysics, uh, Rosicrucianism, and Kabbalah, is as follows. Everything you see and experience, including other people, is the result of your own thoughts and emotional states. Each of us dreams into an existence in infinitude of realities and outcomes. When you realize this, Neville taught, you will discover yourself to be a slumbering branch of the Creator clothed in human form and at the helm of limitless possibilities. Neville's mystical teachings seem to fall in line with uh, key issues and philosophy discussed in today's uh, quantum physics debate. Um, Neville Lancelot Goddard was born in 1905 in the British Protectorate of Barbados in the town of St. Michael. His childhood is described as happy yet somewhat poor with him and his eight siblings competing over hand-me-down clothing and uh, second helpings at the dinner table. At 17, he moved to New York City to study theater and dancing, which began as a career, or sorry, which began a career as a successful vaudeville dancer and Broadway actor. He even toured America and Europe with dance troops. Regardless of his successes, he still needed to supplement his income by working as a, an elevator operator and shipping clerk. Um... His interest in stage performance started to fade as he encountered an alluring range of spiritual ideas, first with self-styled occult groups such as uh, Rosicrucian sects, and later with the help of a life-transforming mentor. In his lectures, Neville described studying with a turbaned Ethiopian-born rabbi named Abdullah. According to Neville, the two studied Hebrew, Scripture, and Kabbalah together for five years, planting the seeds of Neville's philosophy of mental creativity he spent the rest of his life giving uh, lectures writing books and honing his philosophy until his death in 1972 hopefully i read that okay i had to i was like looking at a weird angle at the screen he uh sounds <laughs> like the main character of a kurt vonnegut book i'm now realizing yeah that's really funny yeah, he sounds like he could be in Cat's Cradle or Slaughterhouse Five. I don't know how familiar you are with Kurt Vonnegut. Um, it, I read Slaughterhouse Five, but it's it had it's been so long I can't. It's remember. not even my favorite of his books. The and this actually ties in to Neville because Kurt Vonnegut was the first author I read, novelist that I read that would write in a meta style. Oh, where he gotcha. was like talking to you through characters and making fun of you a little bit while you're reading 
And then like the meaning of his books oftentimes was that there is no meaning. Like that's <laughs> his book, Cat's Cradle. That's my favorite Vonnegut. It's like, and this whole thing that you've been waiting for, the the imminent demise of this whole thing. Uh, yeah, it doesn't really have any meaning, but uh, it was fun while it lasted, wasn't it? Like that's kind of like the story of the <laughs> I love book. That. Yeah, it's it's actually really pretty because like the way that the book ends, it almost leaves you not on a cliffhanger, but it leaves you feeling a little charred. Yeah, uh, at least for me. And uh, <laughs> it's an important lesson. Well, and so I, I've actually been thinking a lot about Neville's method this week, and I had been thinking about it in detail week the weeks prior. But what I gain the most and and you touched on this when you gave the biography is the idea that everyone that you perceive and see and the things that you experience and the things that you're around um are projections of your consciousness is one of those elements that I've had to slowly integrate and accept into myself because it, it can't that at one point was really anxiety inducing for me yeah, at first, especially when you start realizing, um, it, you you go through like several stages of like waking up to this fact. Yes, and I wake up to it, and I'm able to manipulate it, and then sort of forget and go back to sleep, and re wake up to the fact, and re go back to sleep. So, like, even if you learn this, it I mean, it takes several months of using the technique and honing it to yeah. really start seeing results from it. It also makes uh, days of the week fly by. If I'm consciously paying attention to the method while I'm working with it, I was, and I think I've talked to you about this a little bit before, but when I use Neville's method, I will catch myself feeling almost in a groundhog day state at times where it's like every day is kind of blended together for the last dozen. They, oh yeah. They all feel kind of like the same day, just repeating itself in different flavors. Mm -hmm. There's like this gradual stage of evolution. Um, part of that, I would say, is t is some time dilation, which I talk about a lot, uh, especially in regards to New Thought, because the layman's explanation of it for me is that what you are thinking, you externalize into your actions. Those actions create your reality. So... In the imaginative state, in the third eye, in the daydreaming part of our brain where we perceive and understand things we are creating there, and that when we put actions to those thoughts, we consciously create our reality, and and that it's a culmination of the two, and the, the, that Neville method, or that exercise that he, he would say think about the golden gate bridge and what color it is and can you smell the ocean and what's going on there and you're seeing all of these things that are occurring where is that happening in your head and that same place where that's happening in your head is where all of this method is being constructed yeah and the other example that he used as well is like imagine a rose hold it smell it look see it in your mind's eye and he's like if it if the rose doesn't exist then how can you see it and smell it in your mind's eye? Exactly. Because you're you're going 
so Neville's basic premise is that imagining creates reality. And what I was thinking a lot about this week is I think that the astral plane and the imaginal reality are the same thing. Yes. And it somehow filters down to our like mundane uh, physical 3D world uh, when we focus and project the, the states either consciously or unconsciously. Um, so, and that's why I think mad, like any kind of magic you do works because you're imagining that it's working for you. Yes. And so it has like, if whether you imagine gods or imagine angels, demons, spirits, whatever you have, because you're imagining it, they are real. Yes. Even if they're not in this physical reality, they're on that imaginal plane, which is, actually the real reality is is the imaginal plane well i've thought about it before like the 3d world that we live in and the rules like one of the things that people will ask me if i talk to them about neville is like can i can i manifest that i'm able to fly and i every time i say <sighs> yes but you better be really specific with what you mean by that because yeah. you can <laughs> you can fly um that in and of itself is an allegory because there's still three dimensional earthly rules that you have to abide by. And, uh, I think that the rules in part are a consequence of linear time as we know it. But I also think of reality very much as a constantly evolving forever, chaotic, inexplainable game that we've created for ourselves and that the the reason that there are some rules to it, some rules of like how reality has to work, is because that's what creates the reality. It's like if you're playing a card game. I've done this before. It's uh for Monopoly is the most prime example that I try to explain to myself how I have to abide by the rules of reality. It's actually a really good grounding technique for people that suffer from like extreme depression or any kind of psychotic depression or even suicidal ideation. Uh, this is something I've experienced is uh, when you look at the game of Monopoly, the easiest way for the game of Monopoly to unravel is to start incorporating house rules. And the reason is because the house rules play and employ your feelings. And so they slowly start to change the way that the game is being played so that there's no discipline to it. Yeah. So you can't get off the ride. So the game just eventually devolves into chaos where it's like one person's attacking the other person and well, this person's attacking this person. What's the point of playing the game if you don't abide by, abide by the rules? You right. might as well not play. Well, I used to play tabletop at Magic the Gathering with my friends all the time when we were like kids before we really knew the rules. And they would be like, yeah, I don't play by that rule. And I would be like, well, then why are, why are we playing yeah, like, what's the point? I'm not going to have fun. You might have fun. Right, right. And but, so it's... <laughs> like, if we don't play by the agreed uh, agreed upon set of rules, it's going to be a little less fun. Yeah, the earthly constructions of reality are rules that we have to abide by because they make this consciousness, this existence, m- more fun. Well, and what I like, too, is uh, Mitch Horowitz, he... He's a new thought and a, like a cult writer, and he does abide by and use these uh, mental causation pr- principles, but he also tries to bring some rationality into it. And he says, you know, we even if we can create almost anything we can imagine, we're still under the we still have to abide by a myriad of laws and forces in this life, in this reality. 
mental causation being one of them. Accidents happen. Uh, people, you know, have medical circumstances and, you know, like maybe like some trauma or abuse like circumstances. And it in, makes it difficult. And inexplicable things. And inexplainable things. Oh, that yeah. You just can't put names to, you know, like uh, yeah. the thing that. Poltergeist activity. Right. <laughs> right. Or, I mean, like sudden deaths. Yeah. To, uh, you know, I, I'm so guilty of every time something happens to me, trying to reverse engineer it to understand why I'm experiencing it the way that I am so that I can, like, let it be a lesson. And then I remember one time I was on a psychedelic, I was on a trip. And I was thinking about the meaning of life. I was like, why am I here? And then I remember I just started thinking there was this album that had just come out by this band called Glitterer that I was a big fan of. And the name of the album was called Life is Not a Lesson. Oh, I love that. And I was like, oh, right. Like, this is all meant to be enjoyed. I love the thunder in the background, by the way. Um, Yeah, it was like life is meant to be enjoyed. And I just really honed into that in this idea of like, if you're going to use Neville's techniques, if you're going to, uh, I, I really think of Mitch as not an extension of Neville, uh, exclusively. I think he's got his own flavor of new thought, but if you're using these things, it's to utilize reality to be the most authentic version of it that you want it to be. Yeah. So you can, I mean, I've even thought of you using new thought in the most simple way of, um, just like one or two better betterments for myself that I'm perceiving in my reality. I'm watching them change as I believe that they're going to change for me. Like simple things like what? I mean, painfully simple things like I will keep my house clean this week or my house has been clean for months. And it's like, I tell myself this and I believe it. And then it becomes true. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a bit here, but it's just like little things like that that are just really valuable to me. Well, and for me, honestly, those mundane things for me don't happen unless I imagine them happening. Hmm. So like I have, I literally have to like sit down or stand up and like walk around my room and imagine it clean and then I'll clean it. I'll intend to either clean it that day or that week and then it'll happen. If I don't for like a while, if I don't think about it, my room just ends up gradually getting super messy. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, there's a few people, there's a few friends of mine who I don't ever hang out with unless I put in the imaginal act of me imagining hanging out with them. And really? Yeah. There, there's a few, and I'll have to tell you a story a little later just cause it's, I just don't want to uh, drop a bunch of names. But sure. Like, uh, well, should we get into the method? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so uh, this method is known primarily as the state akin to, to sleep, or SATS. Um, I took this description from a Reddit user who goes by the handle of Orion Directorate. Uh, this person has one of the best, simplest descriptions of Neville Goddard's main method that I've come across. Um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. So you start by choosing a scene, uh, and that would be any scene that would come after the realization of your desire. So you choose the scene and ensure that you can add sensory vividness to your chosen scene. So the, the scene has to imply that you already have what you want. So like if you want a certain income or a certain job, you would imagine like a friend or a family member congratulating you on getting this job. 
or you would generate like the feeling of being wealthy or, you know, like if, if you want a certain income level, you, you'll imagine already having that income level, how it would feel to you, how, like how much relief you would have, what you would do, etc. after already having received that income level. So after you choose your scene, you create a drowsy, sleepy state, which is that state known as uh, the state akin to sleep. Uh, many uh, wonder what that means. Um, it is simply a state where you feel completely relaxed and can either be laying down or uh, in a comfortable chair. Um, you can also do this in the state known as like hypnagogia before you fall asleep where you're sort of half awake half awake half dreaming um you don't have to be in hypnagogia though you don't even you don't even have to because i i sort of struggle with what's known as aphantasia and that's where you have a hard time imagining like uh, 3d objects and all of that um it doesn't matter if you have aphantasia or not as long as you what's important is the feeling state that you generate um, so you, you begin repeating your scene in this sleepy state and uh, keep repeating the scene until it seems real to you. Um, this does not mean necessarily that you can see it as you see things in the waking world, but instead so real you have forgotten that you are imagining. Um, many people say they can't reach the state. They are simply not repeating the scene long enough. Go back to the start of the scene and if you, or if you become distracted and uh, you keep re repeating the scene, um, feel as if you already accomplished it. Many argue what Neville meant by feel. Um, Neville frequently talks about feeling as both an emotion and the feeling of accomplishment. The best way to reach this feeling is an inner knowing of that it is done one of accomplishment so it's already finished like you didn't have to do anything it's it's done you don't don't think about the how happy emotions or a feeling of relief should follow if you do it correctly um and then you fall asleep while repeating the scene or wake up from the drowsy state once you know it is done and then once that is done live during the day from the end of your desire so, like, that means if you already had an income of, like, $100,000 and you walk around, you know, you wouldn't be worried about money or bills. You, you would just be walking around with that sense of relief or satisfaction, you know, knowing that, hey, I'm not going to run out of money anytime soon. Something like that. That's uh, pretty much it. So... In regards to the state akin to sleep, uh, I, I always recommend for people that when they're trying to make these manifestations feel really vivid, it's almost like a, this is a weird way to describe it, but I very much feel this way. It's like a mental foreplay <laughs> of trying to get myself into this trance state uh, I experience it with music a lot. Like if I'm listening to some music that I'm really into and I'm just like by myself and I have like set the tone and I'm just with the music and I'm just enjoying myself, I start to 
and just get into this really hyper relaxed state. And then when I'm there, um, I'm able to really, it's, it almost feels meditative that I'm able to just let my thoughts come in and out of my head and flow. Go, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say when you, when you're starting to really do it, you feel just the sense of relief, you know, because if you already had what you wanted, you wouldn't feel excited because the exciting part's getting it. Yes. But after it happens, you're just, you're either relieved or indifferent that you have it. For sure. You know, for sure. Like, you know, the, the most excitement you get is the day you get your Xbox. But once you have your Xbox, you're not excited about getting your Xbox. You're indifferent. Right. It's like, like, Hey, I'm going to go play some Xbox. Yeah, the lead up to the the experience is like the chase is what makes it like intimate. Yeah. And I think even with that thought in mind, part of what what you have to do, quite frankly, to get what you're looking for with these kinds of things is make sure that you live in a state where they have happened. Mm-hmm. And this is this is what's caused me the most success is when I truly get into a state that I believe that these things are happening for me and I start to be able to really lean into those feelings and just be so sure. So it can be something as simple as I am like, if I wanted a promotion at work, I'm saying I now have, or I work in this job. And when I say that job, I'm referring to the job that I would have been promoted to. And I say the address of the place that I work at, I describe how good it makes me feel doing this thing. And I use present tense verbiage to say to myself out loud that those are, this is something that has already happened to me and that this is a new place in my reality that I live in. And you see a lot of really successful, I think of a lot of celebrities that think this way, you know, and Um, some just straight, straight up talk about it openly. Um, Especially in the sports world. You have like uh, Conor McGregor, you know, whether you know, whether you love him or hate him, that that's not the point here. It's he has several interviews where he's talked about before becoming this famous MMA fighter. He talked about driving around in a shitty beat up car, but he would imagine driving the best car, the one that he wants. He would imagine having all the clothes and the things that he desired. He would imagine already winning these fights and you know if you look at pictures of conor mcgregor before he was able to accomplish all these things he looked and i'm not ragging on acne i'm just saying i think he might have like even healed that but like you know he was his face was full of acne and he's like i'm gonna be the best and you you see these clips before he actually was and you would be like what that, that there's no way that nerd irish guy is gonna do what he did. Um, sure. I think about it with like Jamie Foxx too. Or oh yeah. Jamie, Jamie Foxx Fox is, is a, a really one. good example. Mike Tyson's a great example too. Like when he was a kid, his mother took him to a psychic and the psychic said, you're going to be the greatest fighter the world has ever seen. And he attributes that to his success. He says, ever since I was a kid, I knew I was going to be the best because people told me I was, and I believed it. 
Well, and not only that, but he was straight up hypnotized. He went to a hypnotist who basically programmed him to be an animal in the uh, boxing ring. Yes. And he talks about it. And I think he even admits he don't. it, it was those early things that uh, caused him that to get what so he That was so significantly formative, yeah. And so, like, really what Neville's method is doing is showing you how to dream about these things happening for yourself. And then the thing for me, honestly that's like jet fuel for this whole process is sleeping on it, talking about it in the present tense and then acting on it. Yeah. And well, those things help, but they have to generate the feeling of the wish fulfilled. If you say I have this and I have that and they don't generate the feeling of the feeling of you actually having it and you're not believing it, it's not going to work. So you can say I'm a millionaire a hundred times, but if you're not generating the feeling of what it would feel like internally to be a millionaire, it's not going to work. And I'm I'm talking from experience because uh, I've every day I've read affirmations for over half a decade at this point, and there were a few that I would have to reword my affirmations because they would seem so ambitious that I couldn't believe it. And because I couldn't believe it, I didn't feel like I already have it. And then it basically has a backfire effect where it keeps you where you're at rather than uh, getting to the place where you want to be. That's interesting. So Mm. the method sounds simple, but I mean, it takes several months to several years to really hone it down. Sure. Hmm. So um, one way that you can test this is uh, Neville Goddard's ladder method. Um, he referenced it. I don't know if he referenced it a ton in his books, but he did a lot in his lectures. Um, so this is the ladder method. So what you do is for three nights or like a week, every night, just imagine yourself climbing a ladder from the first person. You're in your body. You close your eyes. You know, you see yourself grab one rung and then grab the other and then grab the other. And then what he says to do as in addition to it is put notes everywhere. I will not climb a ladder. I will not climb a ladder. Put it on your mirror. Put it like somewhere in your car. Put it at your desk. Just a note. I will not climb a ladder. But then every night for at least a week, imagine climbing a ladder. And he says, he would say to everyone in his lecture, if you climb a ladder, come to my next lecture next week (laughs) and there's uh pretty insane stories um from people climbing a ladder and they they thought they never would that's so interesting huh um i had to stop thinking about ladders because in my line of work a ladder implies that i'm running cable and so uh, you know a few years ago I, i did the ladder exercise and I had like several weeks where I had to like run tons of cable and I hated it. So, so I had to, that's so interesting. So I had to, I had to hone back. I don't like super hate running cable, but it's just super tedious. If you do it like several weeks in a row, it's like pretty, uh, physically taxing. But, um, hmm. another way you can test, uh, Neville Goddard's method is, There are three kinds of balls. (laughs) 
baseball, tennis ball, golf ball, you should most likely, you know how they look and how they feel. So what you do, and this, he also uses this method as a way for you to strengthen your own imagination as you imagine yourself holding a baseball, looking at a baseball, you feel all the rivets, how it's hard. You switch to a tennis ball, that's softer, a little squishier, it's uh, fuzzy. And then you switch down to a golf ball, it's smaller, has all of those uh, dimples in it. Um, And you basically, you know, for five or ten minutes, imagine holding one, tossing it up in the air, catching it, switch to the other one, do the same thing. Um, I was able to manifest holding all three of those at my last job, randomly, when I was doing those techniques. Hmm. Um, And I have no reason to hold any of those. That's so wild. So it's like you would get, it would be like, it would be like stuff, uh, you, you know, like if you work for a corporation, they usually give you, they sometimes give you like what they call swag bags, which is just a bag of like useless shit with the logo on it. And like one of them happened to be a baseball with the logo on it. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, (laughs) um, just, just stuff like that. Or like you're walking down the street and you look down and you just see a tennis ball in the gutter. That's so du- that's stuff so like dope, that. Uh, should I talk about the that thousand dollars? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so this is when back when I was testing these methods and uh, this one was what really solidified metaphysics for me and like basically. Uh, made me commit to it was I was at a previous job uh, doing like data entry stuff and I decided to take a 10 minute break and I was like you know what I'm gonna really test this and I'm just gonna like I literally set a timer on my phone and I'm at work like I'm in my chair and I'm just like leaning back and just do a daydream session Um, and nobody knows you know, I'm just like laying back in my chair, sort of relaxing a bit. Um, and I, so I thought of something that would be small enough that I could believe it, but large enough that I would know without a doubt that it was me manifesting it with these methods. So I chose like a thousand dollars. So I set the timer, laid back, and in my mind, I imagined counting just ten crisp $100 bills just over and over again and adding it up, you know, like 100, 200, 300, 400, all the way up to 1,000. And then I would just count it again over and up. And I would just generate the feeling like, you know, if I was holding $1,000, that feels real nice because it's like you look at it and you just see possibilities. Um, well, around that time, I was getting married to my partner um and i believe it was a few weeks it might have been like one or two weeks after the reception um i got a phone call from my partner and they said someone came to my work my place of work and dropped off an envelope 
with a really nice card and a thousand dollars in crisp one hundred dollar bills. And I was like, "No way! Are you serious?" Um, she was friends with uh, the security guard there, who had access to the uh, um, to the uh, CCTV, and <laughs> it just happened to be down. The CCTV system happened to be down when that person dropped off the $1,000. So they couldn't see who it was uh, on the screen. And then we looked at the card. They said they loved us. And we... (sighs) I tried to compare the handwriting with... Because we still... It was so fresh. I had all the cards from all of our other wedding gifts. And I literally compared the handwriting to every other card we'd received to see maybe it was a family member who just wanted to be anonymous to, you know, not show favoritism or something. Could not match the handwriting to anyone who was at our reception or gave us a gift. So, like, I like to almost imagine it was like the universe essentially handing me $1,000 and not revealing itself to me. I... (laughs) One of the byproducts of using this method is what I call the Santa Claus effect. And for me, the the reason I even bring that up is because I've had things come true that I was like, I, to me, these are prayers. And yeah, well, essentially this method is probably a more effective way to actually pray. pray. Yeah. Right. And so I had like these prayers that were coming true and I kept trying to unravel where they came from to try to put some sort of reasoning to it. And I realized that the more I did, yep, the more that I did that to try to explain it to myself, the more that I would uh, get what they call like the Icarus effect where it was like the closer I was getting to the sun or like a Tower of Babel effect. You know, the closer that I was getting to the sun, the more it was like, hey, your wings are about to catch on fire, brother. Like you need to make a decision. Uh and so it's the same thing with like Santa Claus. When I was a kid, I always wanted to know how Santa Claus did it. You know, I was like, how, how the fuck does this work? And then, um, I had, my mom said something about Santa Claus one time. I had to have been like 12 or 13 years old. And she just said, if you don't believe you don't receive, that annoyed me because that's not really an explanation. But basically what she was saying to me was, Yes, I'm Santa Claus, but you have to fulfill your end of the bargain in order for Santa Claus to show up. And that part of the bargain is believing that Santa Claus is coming to the house. So you play your part and I will play my part. And I feel like the universe... Did you hear that? Yeah, don't worry about it. Word. Um, It's just the laptop. Oh, word. Um... I'm just like hearing like noises in my head. Um, <laughs> uh, the, a lot of the time when these things happen, it's like a, a Santa Claus effect that I just have to go. Okay. This thing is coming true. I'm thankful for it. I will leave it at that. Well, and it's, it's a trap. The best thing you can do is to apply all of your effort and energy into learning the method and becoming really good at it. Um <clears throat> There's just no, you know, maybe one day science will be able to explain it. 
and they sort of are starting to in the quantum theory realm and the you know like multiverse theory and panpsychism and all of that but neville repeats over and over again in his lectures uh you know your imagination is god and god's ways are past finding out right um especially if this is actually how reality works we are so far away from even beginning to understand it <laughs> well i heard this that there's almost like no use right now into just trying to figure out why it happens so i heard this thing the other day about how there was a guy that was starting to have a full-fledged panic attack and he had been on this trial medication and he was legitimately having panic attacks so bad that he thought he was going insane and he was rushed to the emergency room he was like i cannot settle down i genuinely think that i'm losing my mind like i'm panicking beyond explanation um and so he gets to the emergency room tells them all this they get in contact with the doctor that's uh driving the study that he's a part of the doctor happens to live in the same town as him, so the doctor comes to the emergency room and he looks at him and he says, Look, you are part of a blind study. You are not taking any medication. Everything you're taking is placebo. None of this is real. This is all in your head. And literally, as he's doing this, they're cataloging. I mean, they've got him set up. They, he's had an EKG. They have him set up to be recording his vitals and within minutes his whole body goes into a relaxed flow state. And the reason that I bring this up is because uh, I think placebo and double blind placebo and nocebo, which is basically that latter method is just, just a really strong explanation of the nocebo effect. Um, or, or maybe the nocebo effect is a, an explanation of that, but I digress. Science is starting to try to explain how important perception and re conscious reality is and it's just it's so hard for it to explain itself when we know these things are true um and one of the things that neville even says in his literature that's like really important is you have to be careful when you're doing these things because you can like if you're getting sick it's because you're manifesting it to some degree and that you have to really explore in your mind what it is that's causing that now i'm not saying that like I manifested getting a stomach ache and then I got a stomach ache. Right. But like, I do think that there are causations outside of a realm of explanation that we can experience in this regard. Oh yeah. Um, well that's why they have to do double blind placebo studies. It's because this, the placebo effect works so well that they have to prove that the new medication does more than the baseline placebo. Um, and they do things. I think it's, I'm pretty sure Mitch Horowitz have, has mentioned it, and I forgot if the, uh, the scientist Dean Radin talked about it in his book, uh, Real Magic, where they do honest placebo studies at places like Harvard and Stanford and all that, where they, they're telling people, hey, this is a sugar pill, but it's for your migraines or something. That's the nocebo, yeah. And it works. Yes. And not only that, but it works for like a long time. And it, it has such good efficacy that I thought about personally buying like sh literal sugar <sighs> pills and labeling it as being for one of my ailments and just start taking it to see what it does. Dude, um, 
I'm going to go ahead and put a caveat on this. We should do that. I don't recommend. I'm about to tell you a story that's going to blow your mind. I have a friend who struggles from schizoidal typal bipolar disorder, uh, where his mood and his personality just don't stabilize ever. And dude, he literally uh, got off of all of his medications and started buying sugar pills online. And every day he has a pill vial and he takes these sugar pills every day. And he says to himself before he takes them, these are my good mood pills. When I take them, I become who I really am and I'm able to stay stable. And ever since he did that, it's been like a decade. And this guy is so financially successful. You've never told me about him it's before. It's mostly you, you because, yeah, it's, it's mostly because <sighs> I just recently found this out because I was joking around about doing this with to him. And he he's like, oh, I already do this. Yeah, he doubled down on it. And he said, he's how like, not only I do this, but it also works. He was like, how delusional are you willing to be about this? Because I've done this very thing. Well, and and he, that's all magic is, is like. It's convincing yourself that you have these powers to make these changes, and then the second you're able to convince to make yourself believe it, it happens. Well, and do dig this. So, like, what he was telling me was that, like, he believes, and th- for the sake of anonymity, I'm going to try to be a little bit vague, but his thought process is that all m- these mental health disorders that are becoming mainstream are byproducts of the collective and it's a way of trying to explain what the collective is experiencing through ourselves so it's like we now in our society mental health has become so stigmatized and normalized that uh, but it, it lives in this duality of both i i truly feel and uh, um, i think mental illness is just it's a byproduct of being lied to for centuries. Or I agree. I agree. It's like there's the cultural conditioning whereby with which you're taught to accept reality as you perceive it. And then there's people who go, yeah, I just, that's not me. And then they're fringe from the way that reality actually coincides for them or it coincides without them. So they are considered like a, a social outcast. And, um, because of that, they like are told that they have this disorder. Like we put the word disorder on anyone who has like a mental illness that can't be described as to how they can participate in society and everything in the DSM five. I've said this so many times, but I, I'm willing to say it again. Every disorder in the DSM five, if you're prescri- diagnosed with a disorder, it has to do with how you interact with other people. Yeah. And that is such an interesting part of mental health for me but his whole idea is that like the way that we perceive reality and the way that we perceive mental health now is a story that we tell other people about who we are to try to explain the way that we're experiencing this place that we live um not only that but especially and we're gonna have to do a whole episode on uh the body keeps the score what a book i'm wondering if probably possibly more but nine times out of ten mental health is most is is, uh more so caused by trauma and not processing it correctly because we haven't really been given the tools to process it 
And, well, and also, uh, I, I agree with you, but I think that the word trauma is so, uh, it's becoming more and more ambiguous. Uh, because, like, to me, trauma is a four-letter word that I'm still, like, trying to learn what it means, you know? Because I've been traumatized multiple times in my life, you know, yeah. for, for extended durations. Well, we both have... Not understood what it was. Uh, we both have, uh, due to various, you know, reasons and causes, essentially have had CPS, PTSD. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, because, you know... A thousand micro traumas equals one giant <laughs> trauma. Personality attribute. Uh, so uh, we have to unravel and unwind and integrate those traumas. So Ramdas had this talk at one point in time. My my obsessive compulsive disorder was having me convinced, and I told so many people about this that I was like I was legitimately losing my mind. So. <clears throat> I was reading all of the literature on schizophrenia because I was like, well, I need to know what this is, right? And uh, the reason I bring this up is because Ram Dass has this really awesome conversation about schizophrenia where he says, like, after all the psychedelic drugs he's done, all of the enlightenment that he's gone through, well, he doesn't use that word, all of the study of Hinduism that he went through by going and meeting Maharaja Neem Karoli Baba in India and whatnot, he was like, if younger me, the clinical psychologist, met now me, he would lock me up in an institution and say that I had schizophrenia. But if I, who I am now, went to India or the United States and met someone who I felt was like me, I they would have the label of a mystic. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like there's this, sorry, there's a social fear in the United States that like the thing that can be the most damning or the, the the scariest thing, and you see it in our horror films, our meta horror over the last ten years has turned into people losing their minds. Have you noticed this? It it went away from slashers, and in like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, everything became kind of like a mind bender horror yeah. movie, and the whole idea is like these horror movies of like I'm going insane, like I'm losing my mind. I I just think of like Hereditary. Hereditary to me is like a is a is a case study on mental health. Yeah, well, most of the horror movies, where a lot of the the good ones are more so an allegory than are like like uh, meant to be taken literally. Yes, like uh, the witch. Oh, another good one. Or uh, even mid? Did you see Midsummer? I didn't. Great movie. Um, the reason I bring it up is just because it's another one of those ones that feels like a psychological, like I'm being gaslighted by people who are telling me that the way that they are treating me is normal and that I deserve to be treated this way. I'm not going to be treated like this anymore. And then basically once you stop being treated by these people that are gaslighting you, you move into a state of ascension. (laughs) That's like the premise Mm. to me. That's, that's like my major takeaway from the movie Yeah, is like this state of ascension when you gain consciousness reminds me of leaving Mormonism. Well, I think that that even could be an allegory to that as well, you know, and, and, uh, I just can't help but think that like as a society, our, our biggest fear is that we're not who we think we are and the rest of the world, like, especially the underdeveloped world, but the, the hyper spiritual world. I just, I think of India a lot. I think of like the, the Buddhists in Tibet and in Thailand and I just see them like 
kind of cosmically laughing at us because I think we are starting to wake up as a collective, especially in the West. And they're they, obviously they're awake. So they're like becoming aware of it, you know, with their dedication to meditation. So they see us like awakening and going, we're going insane. And they're just like, kind of like, Oh, this is just the start of it. Oh yeah. For sure. <laughs> you know, like, well, um, cause I, I don't know. I don't think I've talked to you much about it, but it was like, especially when I first moved uh, to Utah and I was starting to experiment with like these spiritual ideas and, I thought I was going schizo. Um, like it was to the point where I would like look at pictures on the wall and like my brain would like imagine them like going all grudge face or like the ring face or something. Yeah. And like, like going grotesque. Like I wouldn't be doing it purposefully, but I would be just getting these images or these ideas. And, uh, I might have told you this, but I think I sort of developed aphantasia as a defense mechanism for a while. Sure. Um, which I'm, I'm personally able to start unlearning it. Like it's getting better, especially with these magical practices and with the, the Neville Goddard method and all of that. It's, I've noticed uh, personal measurable improvement uh, with being able to visualize. That's sick. I, it's so interesting. Um, uh, uh, something that like hurts my heart is meeting people that have been like emotionally traumatized or things to the like of it that have PTSD. Uh, and they are afraid to be creative because yeah. they don't want to be vulnerable. I, I've met a lot of people that are like that, that are apprehensive to share their creativity because they've been traumatized by it. And it's like, well, yeah, because you get, you know, damn, the one dude. or the handful of assholes or the family members who just dismiss what you're doing and just don't seem to show an interest or care or at worst mock you or berate you for it. Um, or, or even the, the thing that I've experienced myself that really killed my creativity as well uh, is having people try to decide for you how to be creative. Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. Well, the hardest for me is learning to disengage and dissociate my own opinions of myself and my own art from other people's. Oh, yeah. I'm still heavily working on it. Envy, like, envy is such a gross, gross, gross byproduct of uh, creation. You know, it's like you see other people and that. I feel like social media does a really good job of this. You know, you see their finished product of their... Real, conscious reality and then you just become envious of it yeah well just because yet yeah, you're you basically unconscious or subconsciously compare your own life to theirs and that's why like instagram and facebook cause such horrible uh they're polluted depression deltas. and uh, anxiety for people is because people only put the best of what they do out but that's probably less than 10 percent of their life like Let mo most of it's probably pretty mundane I moved to Las Vegas and I had never lived in a place before where there was so many like in this thing. There's this thing in the southwest part of the United States where it's like a Kardashian syndrome where it's like people are literally cultivating their bodies through surgery, exercise, manipulation, starvation to achieve physical feats. Yeah, their, their to, idea to, of, of like what they want to look like yeah. on, on. But they, they're, they're like literally shaping their bodies to be desirable on the internet i've met these people in the wild like it, i 
I'm thinking in particular, there's this one club in Las Vegas. I didn't go to very many clubs when I was there, but I went to one, one of these ones with like a huge cover fee. And I walked through the front door. It was like one of those ones where they like search you at the door. They like search you for weapons. They run like a wand. I was actually like, oddly enough, I was tripping on mushrooms when I went to this place. So everything was looking like, um, uh, what was I, the reason I was having a hard time when I got there was because everybody was looking kind of like they were claymation to me a little bit. And I was like, oh, I wasn't even like freaking out about it. I was just like trying so hard not to laugh at people. Cause like the point is I like go into this bar and it's just music is bumping. It's a super cool looking spot. Like everybody is just dressed to the nines. I've seen some of the nicest sneakers I've ever seen in my life. People are just the clothing is phenomenal. And I'm looking at these people and they all look like they're in fucking Bob the Builder. And I'm like, oh my God, like. <laughs> these people are taking themselves so seriously like am i doing this well, too and like it's like when you meet a pack of fuck boys oh and like everything is tailored to be at like peak physical condition and then they like devour all of the uh pickup artists like media that's out there which yes. i've watched some out of curiosity and it's largely bullshit well it's mostly uh, hyper misogynistic like that oh, for the, sure the number one secret well, the number one secret to attracting romantic partners is being really authentic oh yourself. Yeah. if you are just dude it's like <laughs> there's this podcast um called the red scare and they're like have you listened to them no they're uh shout out to the red scare they would they probably would hate me but i i love their podcast it's these two gals in new york city they're accelerationists so they're like post marxist leninists they're anarchists I'm, I'm trying not to l- mislabel them because they will legitimately eat me alive um but <laughs> Um, the the reason I'm telling you all this about them is because they're pretty aggressive and black and white about their opinions and shit, especially politically. But like one of them one time was like, you know, it's really not hard to get a blowjob. You just need to um wash your body and be nice. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> don't smell and don't be a fucking asshole and, and don't um don't misrepresent your intentions. Because honestly, there are people on every section of the gender sector that just want to get laid and fuck yeah so like it doesn't matter whether you're a man woman bisexual you know non-binary there's somebody out there who wants to would have sex with you yes um because they're also just freaking horny yes um you know with maybe the caveats of you being at an extremely rural place I, um, I've experienced that, but yeah, yeah n- well, me too. But. N- nevertheless, <laughs> I, I'm I'm with you. I, the and the, the reason that I digress that hard is just because like um, you meet these people in the wild. Now here's okay. The occult part of this that would be like kind of interesting is I actually think of uh, I, and I know that we constantly round the horn on this guy. Damn it! But um, I think of Donald Trump in the same vein as a new thought like mastermind. Because oh, yeah. because he literally is such a narcissistic asshole that like the world that he believes he lives in, he truly believes in. And I and I've thought this before that like the reason that he lost the election in 2020 was because he stopped believing in himself. That's yeah, probably like um, 
Well, and he's so old. That's That's got to be hard. You know, even if you're a New Thought master, to continue to rally up that sort of uh, narcissistic uh, New Thought energy yeah. to keep it going and to keep it, you know, you're, you're well into your 70s. Like, how much longer can you um, create the dance? Because uh, th- there have been, like, scientific studies on narcissists, and what they point to is that most narcissists are actually extremely and very deeply have low self-confidence and self-esteem. And so they do all of these things to make up for their own lack of basically self-love. And even if you're a new thought master, if you operate from that plane of trying to have the most power and the most money, and that comes from a place of low self-esteem and low confidence you're you're going to run out of that juice a lot quicker than if you were authentic. That's so interesting. Oh. Um we we'll, we got to do eventually we should do a deep dive on uh, Dark Star Rising by Gary Lockman which talked about all the chaos magic and new thought stuff leading up to uh, is Donald the, Trump's election. Is that the guitarist from Blondie? Yeah, the bassist. Or the bassist, yeah, yeah, dude. What a guy. And now now he's an occult historian. Yeah, that's um, so bad. I mean, dude, I I legitimately believe that Donald Trump saw himself as president of the United States and he became president of the United States. Because, like, for so, I I think he's a great case study on, like, I I hate to use this as an example, but he's a great study on the shit works. (laughs) Because he truly believed, he truly believed that he was God Emperor. Well, he's been doing it for a long time. Um when he grew up, his pastor was a, was a New Thought, one of the bit, the heavy hitters in the New Thought movement. No shit. Uh, his pastor growing up was uh, Norman Vincent Peale, which who wrote uh, the book called The Power of Positive Thinking, I believe. And no I recommend way. It. I recommend reading that book. It is a great book. Um, I didn't realize that was his pastor. I think I've given that book to because it comes from more of like a Christian it, point of view. It's a fun book to um, read when it talks about what positive because I like the way that it frames positivity. Yeah, is like not this like doughy bushy eyed negligent thing, but like that like people that are positive are the ones that also understand the inverse of it exists very much and props it up. Yes, and I dig that. Like I even gave when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, who, by the way, she's in remission and didn't even need that much heavy treatment. That's so dope. I gave a copy of, I think it was the power of positive thinking to uh, all the members of my immediate family. So uh, I gave a copy to my parents. I gave a copy to my brother and his wife. I gave another copy to my sister and uh, her husband. Because I was like, oh, fuck, no. My mom, I'm like, I am I pulled out all the stops. Sure. So, like, I did everything. Like, I did, a, like, a, an intention experiment, one of the Lynn McTaggart ones, the, the Power of Eight. Um, I threw everything I had at it. Um, and she's totally in remission. And it was a really easy and quick battle with cancer in comparison to some other people. Uh, but, yeah, no, Norman Pinson Peel, so Donald Trump's pastor growing up. 
Like, of so, course he fucking is, though. That's what's nuts. It's like, of course he is. That shows us the dark side of this stuff is, you know, if it falls into the wrong hands, they can really use it to manipulate their yes, own reality. Yes, I don't think that this them. shit is benign. And, well, it's, and, uh, and even on a it's micro not level. In, it's inherently neutral. Yes. It's just a tool. All I, of this shit is a tool. I once had energy so, described to yeah. me as like people will talk about good energy or bad energy and that there's no such thing as either. Energy just is. It's a it's a force that moves and is attracted to action and that like the actions are what define the energy. So it's like when people say like, oh, I did this seance and now I'm being followed around by a ghost. It's like. Well, obviously, either you or someone in your party invited some pretty negative energy to that. Yeah. And you have to now celebrate that because well, it's going to uh, follow you. I've thought about this a lot with the uh, paranormal investigators is if they don't have this sort of understanding about like magic and banishing and whatever, um, they'll go into it and they'll like believe they have an attachment. So they then create the attachment. Um, there's also like stories of... Oh, wish i could think of the source but where houses don't become haunted until certain people inhabit them and then they believe it's haunted or there, there's like a house or a landmark where it wasn't initially haunted or had weird energy but then so many people believed that it did that it started causing you know poltergeist activity and yeah. stuff to happen um yeah <laughs> I don't think I've told you this story yet, but I have potential reason to believe that there might have been a death in the apartment that I live in now. Whoa. Uh, because I've ju I've just found some odd stains, and I sort of want to get some, like, luminol to, like, confirm it. Hmm. And so, like, you know, maybe someone died or was killed or committed suicide in this apartment, but the energy doesn't feel like that at all. Because I freaking cleanse the apartment, and I do my own ritual there. Sure. Which nullifies and gets rid of whatever uh, energetic stigma may have been there. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Well, that's like, yeah. Yeah, I totally, I feel uh, that. Well, um, I have a pretty insane, uh, success story that I got from another Reddit user. Uh, do you mind if I go into that and then Please. we can close it out? Yes, that's a great idea. Um, so I will include a link to it in the show notes as well. Um, so I think the post was called Next Level Manifestations. Um, and uh, this comes from a Redditor named NoobTube. And uh, he uh, he has videos as well. He has proof of this story happening. You can go look. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. So this is what NoobTube says. He says, My daughter Kylie ruptured her appendix in December. This was the catalyst for this whole thing. I hadn't yet found Neville, or he didn't yet find me, but I understood perfectly these truths. My mother read the story of Madeline, a children's classic tale about an orphan who gets appendicitis, to Kylie and gave her a doll that goes with the book. The doll was complete with the scar from Madeline's append, appendicot, appendic, 
What's the word where you remove the appendix? Okay. Appendic Appendectomy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for saving me. Uh, Kylie was shaken to the core with fear when she came home. She wept with trembling and shaking at the thought that she too would get appendicitis. I can normally pull my kids out of a fearful state, but not for this time. Or, but not this time. For two to three days, she was absolutely afraid of getting appendicitis and fell asleep like this. Well, you already know, don't you? About a week to ten days later, she got appendicitis. She was only seven at the time. It was the worst thing ever. Long story short, by the time they transferred her to a children's hospital where a pediatric surgeon could operate, the appendix had ruptured. This is not good. We were in for a fight, the fight of our lives. And during the course of an 11-day stay in the hospital, I understood this revelation of imagining creating reality. I was just getting it. God in here versus out there. Anyway, she pulled through as we imagined her walking out healthy by Christmas. She was released on Christmas Day morning. But this is where it gets good. Neville comes into my life right about the week before New Year's. I really dig in, abandon my old network of Orthodox Christian thinking the best I can, and fully immersed myself in the imaginal acts. For my daughter, it was a scene implying her fullest health and life. We still had to have the appendix removed as they couldn't remove it due to the infection. Well, late February, she finally had the, what was the word again? Appendectomy. 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 I gotta remember. The surgeon came out rattled looking and I was like, is everything okay? She said, oh yes, everything went great, but, and then she took the back side of the surgery photos which I'll post down below in the Reddit post, which I'll link in the show notes, and drew a picture. She said, this is normally what the appendix, or where the appendix is. It looks like a little peninsula hanging off the colon, she said. Normally, I'd go and surgically remove the appendix here and pointed to it, and there's a large blood vessel that requires uh, sutures to seal it up. And then there are issues with the colon where the fissures, tears that allow the fecal matter to go through the lining and cause the infection on the appendix. Anyway, she said something to the effect of, I've never seen this before, and I used to teach surgery in Santa Fe, but your your daughter's appendix wasn't there. It had auto-amputated itself. She said when she put the camera through her belly button there was nothing but beautiful scar tissue healing the area where the appendix should be and also around the colon area where the fissure likely was when she moved the camera there lay the appendix she said she couldn't explain it and i simply said something like well she's had a lot of prayer and love poured into her to which the surgeon said well that's god then that's a miracle so in summary, the girl imagined herself having appendicitis after being terrified of hearing the story of Madeline, which a lot of us millennials will remember Madeline. Mm-hmm. Um, after she imagined herself getting a, her appendix, uh, this guy imagined her being fully well, the father, and when they went to remove the appendix, it had already auto-amputated itself, and they literally just had to reach in and pull the appendix out. 
and there's the reason why I wanted to go over this success story is because not only is it just a great story, but he has posted like video and picture proof, which is what really blew my mind. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, yeah, that's so. sick. <laughs> that's sick. I love it. So yeah, start tonight. Yeah. Uh, read, start reading the, the law, law and, and the, the promise. promise. Then after that, read The Power of Awareness. Then after that, read The Feeling is the Secret, all by Neville Goddard. Um, I'll link to some of the stuff. Well, should we wrap it up? I think so. Okay. So you know the drill here. Um, If you want to support us into uh, creating more uh, content, uh, please go to patreon.com forward slash fake magic. And that's a magic with a CK at the end, not just a C. Um, if you would like to, if you like the show and don't want to subscribe to Patreon, but just want to give us a one-time donation, even a dollar helps. Uh, that will help us uh, get the equipment necessary for recording uh, in uh, not only greater quality, but to do some of the musical projects that we're looking at as well. Um, go to a uh, link tree and that's a L I N K T R dot E E forward slash fake magic. One word with the C K at the end. And there's a one-time donation button you can make there, uh, as well as links to pretty much everything else that we have. Um, follow us on Instagram at fake magic pod, all one word, the magics with the C K Twitter at fake magic, one word with the C K. Um, And until next time, imagine better than the best you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Amen.